nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is Tuesday. It's June. June is busting out all over. It's the first of June, twenty ten. Right, I've got the right year. I hope. I, I made a list this morning of all the disaster desures, and the list got so long. I got to the very bottom. I got to Fergie, right? You know the little, the little redheaded princess that um, took the um, forty thousand euros. Never mind. Uh, Oh, between Fergie and Tipper Gore's divorce, I just don't know what to do. Uh, I'm trying best I can to be, what is the word, uh, a culture vulture, to be frivolous. And then, of course, I make a mistake and turn on uh, the media long enough to see the, uh, uh, the blood in the Middle East and finally the... Uh, the end of the world by oil, right? Nemesis, folks. Nemesis. Uh, first hubris. That's overweening arrogance, pride, greed, and the rest of us. And then, uh, Nemesis, the goddess of justice. I went last night again to my pile of poetry, you know. Uh, I thought, well, the banshees understood. The ancient Celtic women, they knew how to just go out and howl. There was a woman years ago who used to stand out in front of the United Nations just uh, screaming. It seems like the appropriate thing to do. Um, the the Holy Mother is, of course, uh, weeping. Um, what the hell did those guys think they were doing never mind miles miles down that damn oil i i think what i will do because i'm pushed to the point where <laughs> imagine being inarticulate things are unspeakable unspeakable i had to go all the way back to my little childhood mind my little what is it the safe place the little story in the back of my head and, of course, it's always, always, always about the ocean, about the sea. I was raised down in Southern California, and my uh, interior life is still lived at the Cove. Yes, La Jolla, right across from Del Mar, the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And most of the time, I spent the day, you know, diving under the reef and looking at this beautiful world beneath the surface of the sea. It's um, fascinating to me 
that the uh, the mess that they've made, this hideous destruction of the uh, Mississippi Delta, and apparently most of the land that touches upon the Gulf of Mexico, is being mucked up. What they did was they put in <laughs> put in this stuff that's supposed to keep the oil from coming up to the surface. You know, keep it down underneath where nobody will see it. Go to the bottom of the sea. That image began to give me nightmares. Um, poor old lousy old Earth, right? <laughs> poor old lousy old human species. The Earth is going to have to pull herself together and straighten us out. We're going to have to. Uh, we're going to have to suffer. That's okay. That's okay. What I thought I would do today, just for my own sake. Uh, I thought I would just go back and read a fairy tale because it's the sort of place where I go when I become uh, utterly helpless and reduced to uh, reduced to tears. Uh, I was looking at my copy of The Little Mermaid and I'm sending it off to one of my friends, uh, a woman by the name of Stephanie Mills. I wanted to mention her just in case you're a television watcher. Stephanie is appearing in a movie on PBS called Earth Days. She's an environmental activist. She's a beautiful woman. She graduated from Mills College back in 1960. And at that time, she said that uh, that the, the future was a cruel hoax and that uh, she, she would have no children. She's been true to her word. Uh, Anyway, that movie is out there and it's available to the school teachers. It's got all the the usual suspects, Stuart Brand and all the others, the heroic activists. It's called Earth Days and it was on PBS over the weekend, so I assume you can still get it there. Uh if you um uh flip around the channels, you'll find it. Uh Paul Ehrlich is in it and you know, there were little bits and pieces of Hopeful information, you know, Paul Ehrlich admits that uh, things haven't gotten quite as bad, quite as fast as he thought they might. You know, that population bomb, <laughs> apparently it's going to be a while. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we have these chronically ill populations now, and China, of course, seems to be catching up with us in the psychosis department. Uh, have you noticed that the people in China are uh, losing it. Well, <laughs> maybe maybe uh, it's just that we're beginning to hear about it. Maybe they have always been insane. I think what I will do today is jump right in to Hans Andersen's story of the Little Mermaid, just in an effort to make myself feel better, just to wander around under the surface of the sea and remember... How beautiful it used to be once upon a time, right? Back when uh, the sea was sacred, when it was beyond anyone's imagination that such a terrible thing could happen as what we are facing today. I think always of my mother's um, anguish, uh, enraged, as Obama would say. She was enraged and... uh, uh, Disenchanted when the uh, the clowns came down to uh, the beach in La Jolla, down to the cove during World War Two, and they they put on a show. They called it an amphibious landing, and they showed how 
we were going to land on the beaches in Europe and win World War II, and they they blew up a bomb out in the in the water in the ocean at the cove, and there were dead fish all over the place. And uh, my mother, uh, it took her weeks to recover, and she made a hell of a fuss. I, I think you know. I think of that and try to compare it with what is happening today. Never mind. I must stop wringing of the hands and settle down. Uh, Hans Andersen wrote this story back in the 19th century. Uh, It's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm a mythomaniac and all the metaphors and images in The Little Mermaid uh, are so beautiful. I just shudder every time I see what Disney has done to it. But there's nothing I can do about that. What I can do is I can read you the original. Back in the 19th century, Hans Andersen wrote a story along, it's almost a novel, a story called The Little Mermaid. Far out at sea, the water is as blue as the petals on the fairest cornflower. The water is as clear as the purest glass, but it is very deep, deeper than any anchor line can go. And many church towers would have to be placed, one on top of the other, to reach from the bottom up to the surface. Down there live the sea people. Now, you must not think there is nothing but the bare, white, sandy bottom. No, there are the strangest plants and trees whose stalks and leaves are so supple that at the slightest movement in the water they move, just as if they were alive. All the fishes, great and small, flit amongst the branches just like the birds up here in our air. At the very deepest place is the Sea King's Palace. The walls are made of coral and the long, pointed windows of clearest amber. The roof is of mussel shells that open and close with the swirl of the water. It looks very pretty, for in each shell lie shining pearls. One pearl alone would be splendid in a queen's crown. The sea king down here had been a widower for many years, but his old mother kept house for him. She was a wise woman, proud of her ancestry. She therefore went about with twelve oysters on her tail. Other distinguished persons were only allowed six. Otherwise, she deserved much praise, particularly because she was so fond of the little sea princesses, the daughters of her son. There were six of them, lovely children, but the youngest was the most beautiful of all. Her skin was as clear and pure as a rose petal, her eyes as blue as the deepest lake. But, just like all the others, she had no feet, 
her body ended in a fishtail. All day long they would play down in the castle in the large halls, where live flowers grew out of the walls. The big amber windows would be opened, and then the fishes would swim into them, just the way swallows fly in, fly to us when we open our windows. The fishes swam right up to the little princesses, ate out of their hands, and let themselves be patted. Outside the palace was a great garden with dark, crimson and blue trees. The fruit shone like gold, and the flowers like a blazing fire, their leaves and stalks forever moving. The earth itself was the finest sand, but blue, like sulfur flames. Over everything down here, was a strangely blue sheen. A marfire, it seemed, almost as though one were high up in the air. One could see only sky above and below rather than at the bottom of the sea. In a dead calm, one could make out the sun like a purple flower. Each of the small princesses had her little patch in the garden. She could dig and plant just as she liked. One of them made her patch in the shape of a whale. Another thought it nicer to have hers shaped like a mermaid. But the youngest made hers completely round like the sun. And she put in only flowers that shone just as red. She was a peculiar child, quiet and thoughtful. When her sisters dressed up in the strangest things they found in the wrecks of ships, all she wanted, apart from her rose-red flowers which looked like the sun, all she wanted was a beautiful marble statue. Of a lovely boy, hewn out of white, pure stone. It had come to rest on the bottom after a wreck. Next to the statue, she planted a rose-red weeping willow. It grew splendidly. Its fresh branches. Hung down over the statue, down towards the blue sandy bottom, where its shadow appeared mauve and kept moving just like the branches. It looked as though the top and the roots were playing at kissing each other. Nothing gave the mermaid greater pleasure than to hear about the world of mortals up above. Her old grandmother was obliged to tell her all she knew about ships and towns and human beings and animals. In particular, she thought it strangely lovely that up on Earth, flowers had scent, for they didn't at the bottom of the sea. And forests there were green, and fishes could be seen amongst the branches. 
The fishes up there could sing so loud and sweetly it was called a pleasure. It was birds, little birds, that her grandmother called fishes. Otherwise, the little mermaids wouldn't have been able to understand, for they had never seen a bird. When you reach the age of fifteen, said their grandmother, you will be allowed to rise up out of the sea. You will sit on the rocks in the moonlight. You will watch the big ships sailing past. You will see towns and forests. That's what you'll see during the year that came. One of the sisters had her 15th birthday, but the others will. Each one was a year younger than the next. And so the youngest would have to wait five whole years before she might dare come up from the bottom of the sea and have a look at the things of our world. But the one promised the next that she would relate what she had seen. Oh, their grandmother didn't tell them enough. There was so much they wanted to know about. None of them longed so much as the youngest. She was the very one who had to wait the longest. She was so quiet and thoughtful many a night she stood by the open window. She looked up through the dark, blue water where the fishes swished their fins and tails. The moon and the stars she could see too, shining rather palely, of course, but through the water, they look much bigger than they do to us. And if a sort of big black cloud slid along below them, then she knew that must be either a whale swimming over her, or else it was a ship full of human beings. They probably never thought there was a sweet little mermaid standing down below stretching her white hands up towards the keel. So, now, finally, the oldest princess, the eldest, was fifteen. She was then allowed to go up to the surface, and when she came back, she had a hundred things to tell. The loveliest, she said, was to lie in the moonlight on a sandbank, in the calm sea, close in by the shore, and watch the big city where lights twinkled like a hundred stars. Listen to the music and to the noise, the din of carriages and people. See the many, many church towers, the spires, to hear how the bells rang. And just because the little mermaid couldn't go up. She longed for all this more than ever. How she listened and afterwards, when she stood by the open window in the evenings and looked up through the dark blue water, she thought about the great city with all its noise and din. And sometimes she thought... She could hear the church bells ringing down to her. The next year, the second sister was allowed up through the water to swim wherever she liked 
she came up just as the sun was setting. That, she said, was the loveliest sight. The whole sky looked like gold and the clouds. Well, she couldn't describe their loveliness. Red and mauve they had sailed along above her. But much faster than they were a flock of wild swans, like a long white veil. Over the water where the sun was setting, she swam towards it, but it sank, and the rosy glow on the surface of the sea was extinguished by clouds. And the next year, the third sister went up. She was the most daring of them all. She swam up a broad river, a river that flowed into the sea. And there, she saw lovely green hills covered with vines. She saw castles. And farms. She saw splendid forests, and she heard how all the birds sang, and how the sun shone so warmly. She often had to dive below the surface to cool her burning face. In a little bay, she came across a whole flock, a flock of little human children. They were running and splashing around in the water. Quite naked, she wanted to play with them, but they got frightened and ran off. And a little black animal came along. It was a dog, but she had never seen a dog before. It barked at her so terribly that she became afraid, and made for the open sea. But never could she forget those splendid forests, green hills, and the lovely little children who could swim around in the water. Even without any fish tails, the fourth sister was not so bold. She stayed out in the middle of the wild sea. She said that was the loveliest of all. You could see for so many miles around, and the sky above was just like a great big glass bell. She had seen ships. But they were far away. They looked like gulls. The dolphins were fun. They had turned somersaults, and the great whales had spouted water. She had watched them spouting water out of their nostrils, as though there had been a hundred fountains all around her. And then came the fifth sister's turn. Her birthday happened to be in winter. And so she saw what the others had not seen the first time, for the sea looked quite green, and there were big icebergs swimming all around. Each one looked like a pearl, she said, yet they were much bigger than the church towers human beings built. They appeared in the strangest shapes and glittered like diamonds. She had sat on one of the biggest, and all the sailing ships had been startled and sailed around the place where she was sitting, with the wind flying through her long hair. But towards evening, the sky clouded over, and there was thunder and lightning, and the black seas lifted the big icebergs aloft, so that they shone in the bright flashes. All the ships reefed their sails. There was fear and trembling, but she sat calmly, 
on her swimming iceberg and watched the blue streaks of lightning zigzagging down into a shining sea. The first time any one of the sisters came up to the surface, she was always delighted with all the new and beautiful things she saw. But now, being grown-up girls and therefore allowed to come up whenever they pleased, they lost interest. Ah, they longed for their home again. And after a month, they said that down below was where it was most beautiful after all. You felt so at home there. Many an evening the five sisters would link arms and rise to the surface in a row. They had lovely voices, more beautiful than the voices of human beings. And whenever a storm was blowing up and they thought vessels might be wrecked, they swam along in front of the ships and sang beautifully about how lovely it was at the bottom of the sea. They asked the sailors not to be afraid of coming down. But the sailors could not understand their words. They thought they heard the storm. They never had a chance of seeing the loveliness to be beheld down below. For when the ship sank, the human beings drowned. And they only arrived at the Sea King's castle when they were dead. And so when the sisters in the evenings arm in arm rose up through the sea, there stood their little sister all alone below watching them go. She looked as though she were about to cry. But a mermaid has no tears. And so she suffers all the more. Oh, if only I were fifteen, she said, I know I should soon grow fond of the world up above and of the human beings who make their homes there. And so at last she was fifteen. Well, now we've done with you, said her grandmother, the old queen mother. Come along. Let me dress you up just like your other sisters. She put a wreath of white lilies about the mermaid's hair. Each petal of the flower was half of a pearl, and the old lady had eight big oysters clamped tightly on the princess's tail to show her high rank. It hurts so, said the little mermaid. Well, yes, you must suffer a bit for finery, said the old lady. Oh, she would so like to have shaken off all this splendor, laid aside her heavy wreath. Her red flowers in the garden suited her much better, but she didn't dare change. Goodbye, she said, and she rose, light and clear as a bubble, up through the water. The sun had just set as she raised her head above the sea, but all the clouds were still shining like roses and gold, and in the midst of the pale pink sky shone the evening star bright and beautiful. The air was mild and fresh, and the sea was completely calm. There on the sea lay a big sailing ship, a three-master, with but a single sail hoisted, for there was not a breath of wind, and the sailors were sitting around in the rigging. There was music, 
and singing. And at this point in the story, our little mermaid sees her, her, her prince, yes. She sees that which will uh, lead her to her doom. Uh, I was going to bring today Sylvia Plath's favorite poem. It's by Matthew Arnold. It's called The Forsaken Merman. I was going to read that as a counterpoint to The Little Mermaid. Anyway, I plan to spend the rest of my week uh, under the surface of the sea. I'm not interested in what they're doing up in the world these days. It's just too dark for me. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. La Pena Cultural Center celebrates its 35th anniversary on Saturday, June 5th with live music, poetry, hip-hop, and a street festival on Shattuck and Prince Street starting at noon. After 35 years, La Pena's mission of creating a welcoming and affordable space to promote cultural understanding, peace, solidarity, and community action through the arts and education remains as fresh and vital as ever. Come down Saturday, June 5th for the street festival at noon and for the Bombazo Rebelde, a birthday party dance at 9 p.m. with Las Momberas de la Bahia and the hip-hop trio from New York, Rebel Diaz. La Peña is a wheelchair-accessible, non-profit cultural center located at 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, two blocks east of Ashby Bart Station. Call 510-849-2568 or visit lapena.org. Que Viva La Peña, co-sponsored by KPFA. And it's 3.30. You're listening to KPFA. Please stay tuned. Coming up right now, it's time for Free Speech 